You are listening to Evidence of Things Screened. I'm your host, Lincoln Alabaster. Today's show is titled The Vibranium Paradox. My guest, Andrea Francis, is here to discuss the finer points of Black Panther, the record-breaking Marvel superhero film from director Ryan Coogler. Wakanda forever! The next episode of Evidence of Things Screened starts now. Once again, this is Evidence of Things Screen. I'm Lincoln Alabaster, and with me here is Andrea Francis, a professor of accounting in Queens, New York, who grew up in South Africa. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thank you. You're welcome. You bring a very unique perspective to this conversation today because you found success in two different cultures that have relevance to this discussion you grew up in South Africa, and then you've been successful here in the United States, both of which are currently dealing with controversial presidents, by the way. But before delving into the specifics of this film, how did your life experience frame this particular film experience? Well, I was born in 1980, not to give my age away, but <laughs> <laughs> so I grew up in apartheid South Africa, which was, you know, in a nutshell, if you can put these things into a nutshell, the oppression and disenfranchisement of the black majority by the white minority. So my formative years took place within this reality. Apartheid impacted where we lived, where I went to school, how much money my parents made and so on. My grandmother had to leave school in grade three to work, but she always loved reading. So that formed a big part of my heritage. She was a domestic worker, a housemaid. And I remember when I went with her to work one day, I tried to sit down in the dining room uh, in the chair where she was cleaning and she quickly rushed to stop me and said you know we can't sit there and then when we were about to drink our tea tea is a big deal in South Africa um, I was reaching up for a mug and she said oh no you can't use that mug we had designated glasses and we had to sit outside to drink our tea we also had to go to the bathroom outside. So it was the first time that I realized that something was wrong, that we were treated as less than. I think I was five or six at that time. So the realization impacted the way I viewed the world from that point on. So as a non-white woman, I figured out early that society, as it was constructed, did not value me inherently. I grew up understanding that what is often referred to as black excellence existed um, but that it may even ex have existed in my family, but it was treated in the media as an anomaly. So when I first heard about Black Panther, I had to think really hard of a mainstream film that was set in Africa. Right. I, right, right. Secondly, the level of anticipation that people had about an all-black cast was just amazing, and I was right there with them. And finally, the fact that this was a film with a black cast and with positive and non-stereotypical roles. Well, honestly, I couldn't really imagine it. No, there there really hasn't been a film like this. There hasn't. No, there hasn't. So thanks for sharing that. It's amazing when you're talking about growing up in apartheid. For Americans, I would think of my age, 
we we can't imagine of course there was racism but for my age that would have been like growing up maybe in Jim Crow right Right. When I speak with my husband, Dwight, he often says, you know, South Africa is kind of like 20 years behind wherever America was. So I totally get it. Um, when he looked at my experiences, like, yeah, it would have been like growing up in that era. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Wow. So while there will be spoilers on today's episode, we'll also deviate somewhat from the normal format rather than going plot point by plot point. We'll instead discuss some of the major themes in the film. So the three segments of today's episode on Black Panther will be one, the big idea, two, the best laid plans, and three, the better alternative. So we'll start in with the big idea. So the Black Panther was released worldwide February 2018 to instant acclaim, both critical and commercial, director Ryan Coogler's third film, following the excellent Fruitvale Station and Creed, grossed $242.1 million in North America during its first weekend, which is President's Day weekend. And at the time of this recording, it's earned over $1.2 billion worldwide. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and it's been challenging and overtaking some of the top grossing films of the past decade, which is phenomenal in, in its own right. So the film stars Chadwick Boseman as the titular character, Black Panther slash T'Challa, along with Lupita Nyong'o, Denai Guerrera, Daniel Kaluuya, Angela Bassett, Forrest Whitaker, Martin Freeman, Andy Serkis, and Coogler's constant collaborator, Michael B. Jordan. Many consider Black Panther to be one of the top two or three Marvel Universe films if not the most cerebral by far. So speaking of Marvel, Andrea, how much did you know about the Marvel Universe prior to watching Black Panther? And did it have any bearing on how you approach the film? So I'll be honest, yeah, and I have to say that I knew very little and st still know very little about the Marvel Universe um, prior to watching Black Panther. I hope that doesn't immediately disqualify me in no, the minds no. of our listeners. Not <laughs> at all. Since I was a fan of Robert Downey Jr. from the first two Iron Man movies, I also watched Man of Steel. Then, with some coercion from Dwight, I went to see Captain America Civil War. And that was where I was first introduced to T'Challa. So you have credentials here. <laughs> you have credentials yeah. here. Don't sell yourself short. All right. All right. I I will accept those credentials and yes. wear them proudly. <laughs> so, but what my relative ignorance about the Marvel Universe did facilitate was my having, I guess, fairly few expectations about Black Panther. I also hmm. didn't read much about it before seeing it. Um, we did see it in the opening week. Uh, again, at Dwight's insistence, <laughs> I knew that it was set in Africa, but I really didn't know what to expect. I will say that the cynical side of me was waiting to cringe and was prepared for the very real possibility that this film would be some type of a caricature of life on the continent. I thought so as well. Mm -hmm. Especially since it was being done in the context of a superhero movie. To me, it seemed like it was, you know, two strikes right. already. Because they mm -hmm. had to appeal to the broadest audience mm -hmm. possible. So I figured that they would just swim within those tropes that we've right. seen before and just put those up on screen because that's what people expect yeah. of of 
depictions of Africa. Absolutely. And so, you know, meeting those expectations is often, uh, I think, the way the way the work is is viewed so that people will come and they'll be satisfied and their worldviews may not be challenged as much so you know that's what i was expecting and i was pleasantly surprised <laughs> likewise likewise yes so surprised so happy to be wrong about right. my initial <laughs> thoughts so the story of the black panther film is about t'challa who becomes king of the fictional african nation of wakanda and thus the next Black Panther, a superhero empowered by the chemical reaction between a natural herb and a supernatural metal called vibranium. Wakanda has risen to become a technologically superior country on account of their sole possession of vibranium. And as a nation, they've elected to conceal this metal and all its benefits from any and all that are outside the Wakandan borders. And instead, they choose to present themselves to the world in this false image of what we were talking about, this stereotypical African mm-hmm. country as impoverished, uncivilized, right. agrarian. And, you know, the problem is that not everyone in Wakanda agreed with this isolationist or probably better nationalist mm-hmm. policy and the plan to smuggle vibranium to assist people of African descent in overthrowing their oppressors sets in motion a chain of actions that change the trajectory of Wakanda forever. So that's the the plot line. And Andrew, this first segment deals with the big idea, Mm -hmm. this national policy of Wakanda to remain unto itself and exponentially improve its own society through vibranium, which is a gift that keeps on giving. (laughs) What are your thoughts on their strategy? the pros cons what did you think about that you know i can really see the that there are a number of pros to the approach just as i said you know i grew up in south africa we were deeply impacted by colonialism and so to me the obvious pro is avoiding the possibility of having the vibranium taken by another power whether it's a country or some other power if we look at the history of the african continent colonization largely revolved around resources So this would be a typical approach. In fact, Claw was already stealing it. So it seems clear that an invasion could take place. And I know from my reading within the comic books, that was constant attempts at invading, right? Wakanda. So um, those those pros of, of trying to stay isolated in order to preserve the resources, I understand. I guess the other pro I can also see is some type of uninterrupted innovation process. So the fact that they could, you know, continue to innovate using the resource instead of having to be concerned with outsiders and in my in further readings, I saw that part of Kugler's fantasy, you know, is of an African nation untouched by colonization. And I read that he actually modeled Wakanda to some extent on Lesotho, which is not that far from where I grew up, which really? uh, avoided colonization for the most part. So, uh, yeah, I think that, that that's a big pro. I mean, the cons, I think, are obvious when you look at attempts at isolationism in history they've rarely ended well, right? Um, Wakanda's isolationism makes it a target for a takeover. Correct. From inside or outside, right? The vibranium could end up in the wrong hands, of course. Um, 
and and then there's this the the con that they are not able to use their resources for helping those who are suffering on the continent or elsewhere in the world and we there is an interconnectedness and interdependence through globalization that's undeniable so it almost makes it feel like isolationism if not impossible is is very inconvenient yeah i i do agree with that point that last point i think you're right. I mean, there's something about maintaining some sort of domestic peace uh, by abstaining from world conflict right. and world commerce, especially if they are, are self-contained mm. and also increasing their their own prosperity. And I get that. Right. But the problem is what you said, seeing suffering on a mass scale, knowing that you can do something about it right. and choosing not to. Right. Which, by the way, is one reason, probably the most cited reason of why people say this idea of believing in God is not for me, because right. if God is all powerful and yet there's a child who dies of hunger every, I don't know, whatever, seven minutes or so, mm -hmm. then either he has the power to do it and he doesn't or he doesn't have the power to do it, in which case, why am I following him? So I get that. Uh, as sort of a major con for Wakanda remaining unto itself. Right. Given the context of the world around Wakanda, I mean, you talked about the appeal of not being colonized. So in that regard, I don't hold against Wakanda mm -hmm. because they've seen what colonization does, uh, particularly to nations in Africa. Right. So, I mean, I guess <laughs> yeah, you can't yeah. really fault them for that you can't and i think what happens when you're in this isolationist mode is that you are i feel like shielded from the experience of others although they could see what was happening in the world it's really njobu you know uh, sterling k brown's character who is embedded you know in oakland and begins to see the plight of the people there i feel like his character i can I can see how he could have ended up, you know, wanting to then bring the vibranium out. Granted, his approach with Claw is, is problematic, but I guess what I'm saying is that isolationism, yes, it, it's beneficial. It was beneficial in Wakanda, but what it also resulted in is, I guess, a certain myopic view of the world where they, they kind of had made this decision that they weren't going to help uh, in ways that that would reveal, you know, their resources. But by the same token, then they were, I guess, unable because they were not engaged in the life of others. They were unable to see the desperate need that was there for them to intervene. Absolutely. And that is the major problem. And as you said, in Jobu, he saw enough mm -hmm. to to go against what was tradition. Right. Thinking about spiritual parallels here, I see a type of Wakanda in the Bible, actually, in the Old Testament specifically, when God intentionally separated the nation of Israel from all the other nations. And, you know, instead of vibranium, he gave them covenants like the Abrahamic, the Mosaic and the Davidic covenants. And there were more. And these covenants established his blessing over them, including the establishment of an eternal kingdom through the throne of David which has shades of Wakanda and the, the, the throne being handed down generation to generation. Um, and, th you know, this was the promise provided that the Israelites didn't stray from him. 
And it was these covenants that would distinguish the Israelites from all other nations. And like the vibranium tattoo on the inner lip, which identified Wakandans and confirmed their authenticity, God required circumcision as a physical sign of the covenant. So is this something that am I too far off on this or do you also see some of these parallels? Is this too far? No, I don't think you've gone too far at all. Actually, you know, I, I love the similarities that you're drawing. I think the parallels are, are brilliant to to think of it that way is 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 really smart. And I, I do think that the the similarities exist. What I will say though, you know, in my ruminations on this is that the vibranium meteor landing in Wakanda from everything I have read is appears to be a somewhat random event. And True. Then the Wakandans were left to decide how to handle their windfall. In the case of Israel, the covenant God made was an intentional act with a greater motive, you know, being the saving of mankind. So they do have very similar characteristics, but I guess the... the but what about choosing Abraham? Wasn't that kind of random in a way? Well, you know, I think that's a good point. And I, and I was again reading and thinking about this and and i'll probably jump ahead a little bit you know in our discussion if we think about how abram was chosen yeah you know genesis 11 you have the tower of babel and people kind of completely you know if you want to use modern day terminology wilding out and um <laughs> you know god says okay if this is what they're capable of when they're working together um and you know the flood is still part of the collective memory but they're they're doing this and they, I mean, they've had a revelation of God, right? They know who he is and they still choose to do this. He he made a call to, to someone and that, you know, that person listened. So, yes, I guess one could think of it as random or one could think of it as that may have been the only individual at the time who was willing to hmm. follow. I could see that. I could see that because... God, as we know from the Bible, is not random, um, although some of the things may seem random, right. but surely he knew who Abraham was in right. his character. So in that regard, that Abraham was a person of character right. that God could trust. Who still had a choice as to whether he would take this major step of faith, of course. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So... To me, there are traces of Old Testament covenants in Wakanda's favored nation story, but I think to carry out the parallel to the full extent, I was looking at verses like Deuteronomy ten seventeen to 19, where it says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. So I think in terms of Wakanda, the idea that they did not extend their largesse to the um, surrounding nations and the world, I think that's where maybe the parallel falls apart in terms of the Israelites in the Old Testament where God was saying that you are to treat the foreigners uh, among you and around you in 
benevolently because right. you were foreigners. Right, and I agree with you. The parallel does fall down also in the sense that to a large extent, when you look at uh, Israel, the way you know Abram was called and, and the way things evolved, they were meant to be an example. It's, it was like a missionary nation, right? A, a pedagogical right. tool. Sorry, I'm a professor, so of course I'm going to go down that road. But it's about teaching and being a light and showing the other nations this relationship with God and, and how being in relation with God happens on a daily basis basis so so yes you know the to your point about Wakanda not sharing their largesse to to a very great extent and I mean this is even said in in Genesis 12 3 uh, God says all people of the earth will be blessed through you to you know to just uh, uh, leverage even what you were saying they were supposed to be a blessing. I mean, we know that Jesus Christ came through that uh, lineage so it's the ultimate plan the ultimate blessing and and certainly that's where the path i think of the israelites and the wakandans diverge quite dramatically correct correct i agree the blessing of the israelites to me was meant to separate them spiritually but not maybe judicially they were to have the same amount of justice for foreigners as they did themselves and we can see that in deuteronomy 24 17 um and Numbers 116 as well, which says, Here are the disputes between your people and judge fairly, whether the case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing among you. Right. And so in these examples, uh, you, you know, you're right. I think the, the, the argument sort of breaks down, the parallel breaks down when we see how God wanted the Israelites to treat others. Right. So... He gives the people, God gives the people of Israel this message through Moses mm -hmm. in Exodus 19, 4 to 6. If you obey me and fully keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But then he says that regarding foreign foes, you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy, do not intermarry with them, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. So how do we <laughs> reconcile the two? Yeah, right? how do we reconcile <laughs> these two things? Um Yeah, I mean I maybe to me I just go back to first principles like why was Abram called out mm -hmm. it's back to the Tower of Babel and the fact that God saw what was possible when people kind of came together and and did their thing in terms of trying to elevate themselves basically above God right so so calling uh, Israel out and trying to to keep them as I guess, like I said, this type of mission, missionary nation trying to show what it is to be in relation with God. I think to some extent, you know, someone could say, well, is it like a purity thing or whatever? But I think it's I think it's more than that. I think God could certainly see and understand what was possible if the intermingling started happening again. I right. mean, remember, these are the same people who ended up in exile in Babylon. They were kind of, you know, really not following the, the, the script. So what then happens is that the, the ultimate plan, so we're talking about a, a greater good situation, which I know is like a whole other discussion, but yes. the ultimate plan of Jesus coming through, I mean, if, if Israel gets decimated and, you know, 
they are so intermarried and intermingled that they are no longer even what they're supposed to be, then then how does the world get saved? Correct. And I think for Wakanda, this idea of intermingling, they had the same ideas about it, perhaps, and that's why they didn't want to err on that side. They felt, and they were, self-contained. So the idea of intermingling, maybe they had that same concern that by allowing others in, it could eventually dilute the power and strength yeah, to of an extent, the but nation. I, right, but I feel like their their lack of of I guess impetus for intermingling was so self serving though. If you mm. know, if you think about God's plan, it's right. still in motion even now. You know, in twenty eighteen. So we're talking about the long, like the long, long game with right. Wakanda. And I mean, I love Black Panther and Wakanda. Don't get me wrong, but I think with Wakanda. There's there's a self-interest element that is so big there. So I think when you're looking at it that way, I'd say, you know, intermingling just because you want to self be in self-preservation mode is is not um, the way to go. Israel wasn't not intermingling because of being in self-preservation mode. Uh, to some extent, it was really more about what was coming in years or centuries later. That's key. That point is very key. And we're going to get to that. Because I, I think you're right, the, the motive, whether it's self-preservation or when you talk about God's, the long-term plan, it's, it's never about um, self-preservation. He's never interested in that, but he's looking to incorporate as many people into the plan of salvation as possible. So great point. That is certainly a huge diversion between the two, between God's plan for the Israelites and Wakanda's strategy. So we're going to pause right here and take a break. We will be right back for more with Andrea Francis on the film Black Panther. You are listening to Evidence of Things Screened. Welcome back to Evidence of Things Screened. This is Lincoln Alabaster with my guest Andrea Francis here to discuss Ryan Coogler's Black Panther in this episode titled The Vibranium Paradox. In the first segment, we talked about the ways in which Wakanda's decision to keep the powerful and multifaceted metal vibranium to themselves was both like and unlike God's decision to bless the nation of Israel immensely and keep it separated, in a sense, from the world. But in this segment of the show, I want to explore what went wrong with Wakanda's plan. And even before we do that, I want to take a moment and talk about the women of Wakanda. So, Andrea, what are your thoughts about the role of women in Black Panther? And before you answer, I should note that Lupita Nyong'o plays Nakia, a Wakandan spy involved in liberating women from captivity and other good deeds. Denai Guerrera plays Okoye, the most accomplished warrior in Wakanda and leader of an all-female guard. Angela Bassett, the great Angela Bassett, plays T'Challa's mother, Ramonda, queen of Wakanda. And Letitia Wright, she stole the movie, in my opinion, as Shuri, the brilliant technological wizard and also the sister of T'Challa. 
So your yeah. thoughts. <laughs> First of all, it was surprising and I think so refreshing to see. I felt, you know, I, I don't emote that much, but I felt like jumping up and screaming in the movie because <laughs> I was just so excited <laughs> to see these women. They were strong, unapologetic and entirely believable. I just couldn't stop smiling. I felt sad that this depiction of women was unprecedented for Hollywood, um, you know, the only way I can think of when I sat watching the movie was, yes, that is what women are capable of if they would only be given the platform. I grew up around strong women and it just felt right. It felt like, yes, we. it felt comfortable. Like I knew that this was what women could do, that T'Challa was actually dependent on women, you know, for his safety and security was brilliant the way they wrote that and it didn't feel forced. Right. And also the one scene with... um. Okoye and Wakaba, is it Wakaba, right? Yes. Uh, the boyfriend or the love when the rhino kind of stops right in front of her. Okay. And then he asks her, you know, are you willing to kill me, basically? And she says, yes, and he drops his weapon. I mean, never in a movie with from romantic comedy to, you know, horror do you find women in, I don't know, I just felt like she was in such a strong position and it felt so easy like it just felt right and so as a mother of a young girl i'm just grateful that the tide may be turning as it relates to the spaces that women occupy in the popular culture and right. not only women but women of color right i mean yeah it just seems like so easy to do this but yet it hasn't been done exactly. and that is what is it's so frustrating but at the same time, like you said, it's exciting to see finally <laughs> we have women of color and women being portrayed in these ways, which it's like, it seems like if it wasn't that way before, it was actively not that way. Right. It was actively not that way. And it was also stereotypical, you know, the usual, either the mammy or the <laughs> Jezebel or the hey know, girlfriend uh, yeah, sidekick. Yes. Yes. And so, you know, to, to Again, when I think back about my concerns going to see the movie, I just thought, oh, man, I just hope it's not going to be, you know, the stereotypes. And it was just fresh and and real. I've read some critiques about Wakanda in this regard that, that said it's still a patriarchal society because it's ruled by men and mm -hmm. a man. And there may be a point in that argument, though, as far as I can tell, when there's a challenge to the throne... A woman warrior could have challenged yes. T'Challa if she wanted. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I get where the critique is, but I think that ultimately women do have power in this in this nation. And like you said, T'Challa needed them in yeah. order to succeed. Yeah, they, they do have power. And I mean, we saw that moment in the movie when Shuri looked like she was about to make a challenge. And so it's that even seemed believable when, you know, she she was joking around, but it looked like she may have, you know, said, oh, well, let me challenge. And there, right. there were women on the council or at least one woman on the council to the king. And, and of course, the, the security. And yeah, it's it's just... I guess I understand the critique, like why isn't it just a, a, you know, I guess a female Black Panther. One, the comics existed years ago. I guess you could rewrite them, but for now, um, I'm actually comfortable as a woman with the way women were portrayed. Yes, and you know, I read that in one of the comics that Shuri, 
mm. um, the sister uh, does take the the herb and she does become Black Panther temporarily. So I'm sure in the future that could be a spinoff or or a standalone film in itself, uh, particularly with the popularity of Letitia Wright Absolutely. as Shuri. So I think that option is open, particularly because the comics went there already. Right. And remember, she has that third suit, right? In yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So who knows what's coming? <laughs> yeah, I like that scene a lot. It reminded yeah. me of, as a James Bond fan, it reminded yes. me of Q yes. showing Bond all the gadgets <laughs> and things like that. Absolutely. So I was definitely loving that. At the risk of taking a detour here and touching on a third rail topic, unlike many mainstream films that feature women of color, Black Panther did not showcase a light-skinned leading lady who's presumably more palatable to both white and black audiences. In fact, what I noticed is that there was one light-skinned woman who was summarily executed without remorse by her man, Killmonger, when she became an obstacle to him. So am I digging in the weeds here? I know I'm, I'm going off tangent with this, but or was this a cognizant pushback by Kugler to the Hollywood and media narrative about black women of a certain hue? Right. And, and you notice like they had the joke about the wig with the Koya throwing <laughs> off the wig, sort of rejecting yes. the idea of... So, I know I just kind of threw this in, That's but... That's okay. <laughs> Look, I, I think that... I don't think you're digging in the weeds. I think it's actually a topic that that has been thought about. And I even recall... I don't, I don't recall the actress's name now, but there was an actress who said that she was uh, auditioning for Black Panther and then actually decided to let it go when she was fairly deep into the process. And she, because she's mixed, she's light-skinned black, and she said this was not a place for her. Uh, she really? felt. Yes. And so, you know, we can look that up later on and I'll show you. But yeah, I, I wish I could remember her name. But I was struck by that because I thought, wow, she she recognizes something that I think um, is important in that, look, I come from Africa. There are certainly people who look like me, you know, light skinned black i mean i have a whole other race where i'm from that i belong to they are white people but right. you know but and and now at the risk of me definitely going off the rails here the reality is that you know whitewashing a a movie like this or light skin washing a movie like this i think would have been uh unfortunate because then we're still playing into this no this i guess european notion of what is beautiful and what does beauty really um, involve? I'm coming from a country where you know there were pencil tests to see how straight your hair was, the the width of your nose was measured, and mm, so on. So mm, I carried that. Mm. I carried and I carried that weight with me in terms of the fact that if I had to look objectively at what was seen as beautiful in my country, I did not fit the bill. Moving here, people are like, oh, you're light-skinned, so now you're suddenly beautiful, but that's not how it, how it works. So I actually found it very redemptive to see people who look, maybe not even like me, because I, I am, I guess, considered light-skinned in this country, but yes. people who look like my ancestors um, were being portrayed in ways that were so positive. I think that 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 was the right thing to do because it helps us to shake off to some extent again what was basically imposed on us, which again is a European colonial sense of what is beautiful. Yes. 
thanks for taking that trip with me <laughs> down a side no road here. <laughs> so we said, obviously, that without the women in Black Panther, T'Challa would not have succeeded. And now as we think about the spiritual parallels here, Andrew, you know, historically, the church, in quotes, has resisted the idea of women as authority figures. People have misused 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 14 for many centuries to suppress the voices of women in the church, the same way that Colossians 3.22 and Ephesians 6.5 were misused to justify slavery. Mm-hmm. So my question is, can the church learn anything from Wakanda regarding the roles of women? Oh, so now we're really <laughs> yeah, hitting now. the hot, <laughs> the hot <laughs> topics, right? <laughs> we're not shying away. Yeah, here. we're not shying away. We're going full throttle. You know, t- yes, First uh, Timothy 2, it's 12 through 14. What a tough passage to read and, and to, you know, yes. as even as a woman, as a man, it doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's tough to read. Um, I think there are historical and contextual considerations which we should be looking at. But sadly, many times they aren't even brought you know in uh it's easy to make the bible speak in whichever way i guess the church and yeah i'm referring to maybe more the administrative side of the church would want it to to speak so um you know there are other things that happen in the bible in the context of the day which are not taken so literally but somehow these passages always manage to (laughs) to to make it through and i mean we also, I have to think about like Galatians 3.28, where it said there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So are we going to, you know, pick one verse and leave the other? Like how, you know, how, how does this work? Exactly. I mean, my belief is we're all part of the body of Christ with different gifts and women bring something unique a depth of understanding, a multifaceted approach to problem-solving, empathetic views. This may be dramatic, what I'm going to say, but I've often thought in, in, in my time in the church that the limits our church has placed on the role of women is in fact a very effective way of slowing down the spreading of the gospel. Yeah, no, well, <laughs> well said. I think, unfortunately, the Bible has been used historically to marginalize a lot of different people, women particularly, that's the, the point of this conversation right here. Right. And in the context of women, the thing is, we know that in the Gospels, women play a prominent role right. in the birth, obviously, the ministry, the death, re- post-resurrection, life of Christ. You know, Luke records that women funded Jesus's ministry. Right. There were wealthy women who funded it. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote that women were the first ones made aware of Jesus's resurrection and they were told to go and tell others about it. So in acts, there were accounts of both men and women being integrally involved in spreading the gospel because Saul, uh, before he became Paul, the apostle Paul was throwing men and women into jail. Right. And it says in first Corinthians 15, six, that after resurrecting from the dead, Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters He wasn't excluding women. He was appearing to both men and women. And there's more. Like in Romans 16, Paul mentions Phoebe, who was a deacon of the church, Priscilla and Aquila, his co-workers in Christ, and also Adronica and Junia, who many Bible scholars believe is a woman. 
where he said there were fellow Jews who were in prison with him and writes were outstanding among the apostles. So I know that there's a lot of debate on this, but for me, the point is that there's something for, for the modern day church to learn from Wakanda, as well as the New Testament itself regarding roles of women. I don't speak for the church, but for me, I'm just a question is like, do you really think that God would tie the hands of half the world right. population right. from preaching and teaching others about the gospel of Jesus Christ? I mean, yes, obviously some people think that, but I would guess we would just have to agree to disagree. Yeah, and I'll be right there with you. I think that the organic approach to women's involvement in Wakanda, you know, at every level is definitely something that the church uh, can learn. And even when we look at who's in the church and who's doing a lot of the, you know, the work in the church, Absolutely. I mean, it's it's women. Absolutely. So if we're going to follow Christ's model and, and be followers of Jesus, then, you know, this cherry picking of, of texts in order to silence most or half at least of the population yeah. is 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 actually a travesty and you know back to my point that i think we're slowing down the work significantly by by taking this line correct correct yeah i'm in agreement with you on that so it is high time that we talk about eric stevens aka eric killmonger a.k.a. Killmonger. <laughs> <laughs> He's the uh, chief antagonist, if you will, of Black Panther. And in many ways, he's a product of his own circumstances and his environment. And as you mentioned before, his father was Njobu, a Wakandan prince and spy who was on assignment in Oakland, California in the early 1990s. And as you mentioned again, Njobu was surrounded by the inner city blight and he saw injustice oppression literally at the street level and he concluded that wakanda's isolationist policies were crippling people of african ascent all over the globe so he conspired with claw to smuggle vibranium out of his country to empower and enable black people to overthrow their impressors and when king t'chaka who is njobu's brother and t'challa's father when he learned of the plan, he traveled to America to confront Njobu. And tragically, the encounter ends with T'Chaka murdering his brother and leaving Eric, his T'Chaka's nephew, basically to fend for himself as an orphan in Oakland, rather than bringing him back to Wakanda and raising him there and, I guess, confessing what he had done. So he's just hiding all of this and just dumps Eric to to be raised by who knows who, who in in Oakland. Mm -hmm. So of course Eric is going to grow up with a chip on his shoulder right. and he does especially with the backdrop of this military industrial complex. So when he's of age and agency first thing he does he sets out to finish what his father started and now known as just Killmonger he manages to challenge and overthrow T'Challa in Wakanda and assume the throne there. So the next stop for him is liberation of all people of all African descent. And so there's a debate on whether Killmonger is a true villain or not. And I'm interested, Andrea, on what your thoughts are on Killmonger, both as an African and as an American. And, and has your view of him changed at all since you first saw the film? Yeah, wow. Uh, you know, Killmonger is, is such a complex 
character and you know well written and well played in the movie but I can totally understand you know where he's coming from this bad very bad experience with his father dying and and just as you've described all the all the things that happened subsequently you know his stated goal is to liberate people of African descent and and it's and it's it's a noble goal I think that alone would make him a hero you know to many however the question for me is whether that is his sole goal or whether you know as I think in the comic books his goal is really something more than that and uh, you know leaning more towards world domination when he talks about the sun will never set on the Wakandan empire. Right. In fact, it's, it's actually starting to hint towards the very imperialism, which, you know, brought the people of African descent to the point where they are right in that moment. Right. And he burned all of the heart shaped herb so that there would be no No. successor. (laughs) And so, yeah, I hear you. And yeah, so he he's just, you know, this it's this classic case of do the do the ends justify the means? You know, he's 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 talking about wanting to liberate people of African descent, yet also going around killing, you know, the very people that are around him. So, you know, it's it's kind of. It, it bothers me. I, I feel like his methodology is is problematic, but I also understand that it's the only methodology that he knows. It's what he's been right. trained in. So this is, you know, why I feel like it's so complicated to try and and just say, oh well, he's he's an outright villain. In fact, I was I was quite taken with what uh, Jelani Cobb at the New Yorker wrote about Killmonger. You know, he said that uh, T'Challa and Killmonger are two dueling responses to the problem of 500 years of oppression of people of African descent. And what he actually said was that history is the true villain. And mm. I thought that that was uh, quite apt. That's wise. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. like that. I mm-hmm. like that. You know, the the motivation ultimately to me for for Killmonger seemed a little bit more personal, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's where I, I understand what he was saying, mm-hmm. but it seemed that it was less so about the peoples and and more about a revenge right. for what was done to him because it was it did hurt him personally that he wasn't allowed into this kingdom and he was abandoned so i you know to me that's where i feel like and and we'll talk about places in the movie where i feel he was exposed for his true motivations and i'm obviously one of those places was by burning the hardship right. herb so that to me I, I get it. Like mm-hmm. you want to liberate people yeah. but But he's I also there to a settle cover. a score. Yeah, yeah. It's a cover. And and I think that he sees it as a zero sum game. Like he in order to liberate people, he has to hurt other people. Uh, he has to hurt others. Yeah. He has to hurt other people. And and then we have to ask, you know, because and and we'll probably talk about this more, you know, is there another way? Does it have to be zero sum? Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. One could argue that death and destruction were going to be present regardless of what Killmonger's actions were. I mean, it's already been happening in the world in which they're living there in the film. And so maybe at least his transgressions were committed with ultimately a positive outcome in mind. So how do you 
how do you see that? I mean, I, it even makes me think about 1994 when we were going into becoming a democracy in South Africa. There were mm -hmm. people who were willing to to go out into. In fact, they were going out into the street and killing uh, each other, you know, for power and for, uh, I guess letting out those emotions that they had around everything that had happened. So I can understand, you know, violence as a reaction or response to oppression and a lived experience that was so traumatic um, that that might be the only means of expression that someone can see in a very heated moment or in any moment. Right. And, and so, um, Ultimately, in South Africa, you know, we 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 thought we were going to go into basically civil war, but it turned out that we were able to avoid that and and have a more peaceful transition. However, I I know and and we see it now, you know, t uh, twenty some odd years later, that there are still those who who want uh, violent reparations. You know, so so I can you know, I, I understand and I've, I've seen it playing out, you know, in my own life that people say, well, these people have to die basically because we have this greater uh, a good um, that we are fighting for. And so if so many of our people died as a result of the oppression, well, then, you know, what's a few of, of yours? <laughs> right, right. No, I, and I, I hear that. And in fact, maybe Killmonger, if he was quoting scripture, he would probably use uh, Matthew eleven twelve, where Jesus says, you know, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by mm -hmm. force. I mean, it's it's somewhat like it's going to be inevitable that there's conflict. So, mm -hmm. what you know, we might as well be the ones, um, you know, inciting that on our behalf and on behalf of those who are being oppressed. Really quickly, I've heard some people talk about Killmonger as a Christ figure All right. willing to sacrifice his own life to, to liberate his people. How would you respond to that? Um, you know, I have, I've, I've kind of liked the other analogies, but I have some serious reservations about this one. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Um, and the the reason I say that is that although Jesus was certainly a radical in his time, you know, and I mean, Killmonger to a large extent has been radicalized, right, in right. terms of what he's doing, um, Jesus was also willing to challenge the political, social, and economic structures of the day. I always go back to his ethics. I mean, he tempered justice with mercy. And to your point about how God is so inclusive, wanting everybody to be saved, we're back to this notion of playing the long game. Um, we haven't yet reached the conclusion. A killmonger to me is all about like fix it now and, and we're going to... Yeah, I mean, just thinking about that herb, the way he just burnt everything down, he's kind of just in this mode of, okay, I'm here, I'm going to do it, uh, execute, execute. And Jesus is about following, you know, right. and it's about spiritual maturation, which, you know, is going to take place over time. I mean, you're talking about a man who spent 33 years on earth and, and 2,000 years later, billions of people are still follow following him. You know, Killmonger's motives are, are, are of liberation are understandable and good, but they are at odds with his methods. And I mm. think that Jesus was always, you know, he's, he's, even sometimes we didn't understand his methods maybe, but his methods and his motives were always aligned. Right. Well said. Good point. For me, 
this idea of Killmonger as a Christ figure, I, I get it, but I ultimately disagree with it because Killmonger, to me, was not motivated by his love of the oppressed as much as he was his hate for the oppressor. Correct. And I yeah. think that's where the delineation is. Yes, yes. And so, and so it sounds like a similar battle, but it's actually... I think diametrically opposed to what Jesus was trying to do on this earth. Absolutely. I mean, Killmonger, he saw the imperialism, the colonialism, the poverty, the oppression, and he saw that as the direct result of violent forces that were suffered by his people. But yet we talked about it, he employed those very same tactics. Right. Um, and even that to usurp the throne in Wakanda itself, even before he was going to enact his plan, he was using that just to get to Wakanda. And to me, this speaks to the the vibranium paradox, right? The, the this very same element that played a central role in such unparalleled progress of a people was was also a key factor in the story of such uh, an unmitigated decline of a people as well. We'll pause here for a moment, and uh, we'll return with our third and final segment. You're listening to Evidence of Things Screened. This is Evidence of Things Screened. I'm Lincoln Alabaster. My guest is Andrea Francis. The title of this episode is The Vibranium Paradox, and the subject is Black Panther, the worldwide phenomenon directed by Ryan Coogler and starring Chadwick Boseman, Lupita Nyong'o, and Michael B. Jordan. Somehow, we've simultaneously delved deep into this film and yet only scratched the surface. Yes. <laughs> so with the time remaining, I'd like us to focus on what happens in the final act of the film. T'Challa is, he's literally kicked out of power by Killmonger, but with the help of the Jabari tribe, he's revived and the stage is set for a final showdown for control of Wakanda. This man, M'Baku, leader of the Jabari tribe, has previously challenged T'Challa for the throne and lost. And what's more is that the Jabari tribe was seldom visited by Wakandan royalty, which is sort of like they were the New Hampshire and Iowa, you know, <laughs> well, only visited during the presidential primaries. <laughs> sorry to listeners from New Hampshire. Yeah, sorry. Uh, no, no disrespect. We feel your pain. Yet the Jabari tribe was instrumental in the fight for T'Challa to re reclaim the throne. So, Andrew, why didn't M'Baku just let T'Challa die and then challenge Killmonger himself for the throne? You know, M'Baku is very interesting to watch, uh, not only in the challenge scene, but of course in the later scenes where he's asked for help. You know, he's <laughs> he's funny, he's articulate, he's, you know, even silence. <laughs> the CIA guy. I mean, funny. it's, it's great. Yeah, he's kind of funny. But, you know, when I thought about this, I believe that it's M'Baku's values that cause him not to let T'Challa die. It even makes me think of, you know, back back home in, in Africa, those are the types of values that I saw. There's there's just honor amongst men um, and women. And it's that kind of living in those tribes, some of those people nomadic and, and so on. You see that. And so I think it's about values, just as it was his values that uh, compelled him to challenge for the throne. Because right. he believed that they were, they were advancing too far technologically and that they needed to, I guess, dial it back, for lack of a better phrase. And so he went for the challenge. He followed 
followed the rules, he didn't win, and then um, he's not in favor of the direction in, in which Wakanda has gone, um, and he probably believes, and it seems that uh, his tribe has been ostracized, right, to a large yes. extent. He still follows his, his principles, um, and if and I think that's what uh, allows him to, to rescue T'Challa and... Um, but that also allows him to tell them off and say that he's not letting any of his people die in this war that I think he just didn't believe in. Yeah, you brought up some really good points. The fact that they oppose Wakanda moving forward technologically. I think he even called out Shuri yes. for, for being <laughs> the one who's leading yes. them in that path. So the Jabari tribe, they're traditionalists yes. for better or for worse. And obviously for worse, they're not on board with Wakanda as the world leader, I guess, clandestine world leader in STEM, (laughs) science, technology, (laughs) engineering, and mathematics. But for better, it's the principles that you talk about, the honor, the loyalty, the integrity. We know that T'Challa spared M'Baku's life during the challenge for the throne because technically the fight's supposed to end with death. That's true. And so there's that one life for another. You spared my life, I will spare yours. So I see M'Baku following through on that. Mm -hmm. And as to why he doesn't challenge Killmonger, to me, it goes again to honoring the integrity of the system. Because as long as T'Challa's alive, then he is still the king. And so that would be a violation of of Wakanda law for M'Baku to to seek the throne for himself while T'Challa's still breathing. Exactly, and and so even though it costs him something, he he is going to, and he's a traditionalist, and he's going to to follow those rules. And and I think it, it's interesting how they make him in so such a short space of time, such a multifaceted character. I mean, he could have just been like a secondary villain, and everyone's like, oh yeah, you know this guy. But but in the end, just looking at everything that happens, he's is definitely portrayed as as being more thoughtful about his actions and motives. And I know this is a far cry from how the, I guess it was called the man ape was portrayed in the comics. So um, thank goodness for that. (laughs) Yes. No, they really fleshed out the characters. Great writing, great acting, Mm -hmm. great directing all around. Yes. Very well done with this character. As you said, with limited screen time. Yes, and and I believe it was his first major film. His first, oh, really? yeah, that's what I, yeah, I read. I hadn't seen him. I, I know before. he graduated from Yale, but so obviously a good program. But I yes. I know that it was his first uh, film. So oh, that's interesting. Kudos. Lupita is also a Yale mm-hmm. graduate. So <laughs> Yale represent. Uh, yeah, I suppose. Yes, indeed. Um, so, is there a spiritual lesson to be learned from the Jabari tribe? Yes, I mean, I think there there's probably at least two here, and I think you touched on one, um, this notion of them being traditionalists and existing in in an environment that has advanced. I think if we look at some of the circumstances in some communities of faith, that may be, you know, the case for some where they might be uncomfortable with the way in which things have, have moved. Yes. Yet we do have to understand that we all have the same ultimate goal, right? So some may um, may execute in different ways and, and it may be uncomfortable, but I think that we have to go back to principles and say, well, what is what is the motive and, and what is the goal? And I think the other lesson is is something maybe a little bit more simplistic. It's just about how do you treat your enemies, right? And and Jesus right. spoke about this on the sermon 
in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, when he tells us, you know, that we we have to love our enemies. And, and I know that maybe we wouldn't think of Mbaku and T'Challa as outright enemies, but they, they had some beef. So um, the way in which uh, Mbaku treated T'Challa and his, his uh, family that came through afterwards, I right. think is is indicative of how, you know, we, sh- we should be treating others who we may not agree with. I agree. I I think that's a a good point. I feel there is room for some traditionalists, I think, or traditionalist thinking in this general move towards spiritual progressiveness. I think traditionalists tend to feel marginalized. Um, And one example is many Protestant and non-denominational Christian churches. They have the contemporary praise music. (laughs) <laughs> and <laughs> and it's largely replaced the old fashioned hymns and mm-hmm. the organ is now replaced by the guitar and the drums and mm-hmm. things like that. And that's a change that's symbolic of the move towards modernity and mm-hmm. uh, a youthful appeal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are other big ticket items that we talk about with like women's ordination and things. Right. But, you know, the lesson I was getting from the Jabari tribe is that not all tradition is harmful right um to be sure there are things that we're talking about like silent segregation of churches by race race and ethnicity mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. as we talk about the the ideas about women that that need to basically be put aside and come into the 21st century but there are certain beliefs that should not be compromised or upgraded you know for lack of a better term i mean the idea that this the central belief Jesus Christ for the Christian church is the savior and Lord. And that should never be compromised. And I think that that there is a place for that traditionalist thinking. Yes. And I think that goes, you know, back to this notion of what's the common goal or the common motive, uh, in our, in our actions. And, you know, even as we we speak of that where you you know you're speaking about Jesus being the savior that that brings us back to bu- the that it's biblical right so right. so they they will always i mean the the bible is is certainly a beginning point that's that should be something that's central and and i would say biblical and doctrinal beliefs there's room for that uh, sometimes you know in our denomination i think there are times where tradition or type of culture that we have in our church um can sometimes be elevated above some of the the things that are are truly biblical so we need to guard against that but i think that's also just where education comes in in the sense that you know if someone is joining a community of faith we also have we have some responsibility and even those of us who have been here for years we have responsibility to educate ourselves about what is biblical and what is doctrinal and what is just a personal preference that someone has that they want to then impose on others yeah and that's that can be very contentious Correct. parsing out those <laughs> you know the differences we're all about days. the hot topics today <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> um there you know the climactic battle happens where killmonger who by the way now has his own black panther suit um he and wakabi who's joined him and the wakandan army battle uh, against T'Challa, Okoye, Nakia, Shuri, and the Jabari tribe. And the latter group prevails with 
the CIA agent Everett Ross, played by Martin Freeman, who I enjoy from uh, Sherlock uh, on PBS. But anyhow, uh, he <laughs> that's assists, one of my favorite shows. So. <laughs> it isn't. It's really. Uh, it's such a great show. Um, and he assists by taking down the planes that were going to export the vibranium to the insurgents across the globe, which I thought was maybe probably the the most unnecessary part of the film. <laughs> but, you know, anyhow, T'Challa and Killmonger, of course, they end up fighting one on one and T'Challa fatally stabs his cousin, which mirrors exactly what his father did to his uncle. Uh, and so it's sort of like like father, like son. When T'Challa offers to use Wakanda's restorative powers to heal Killmonger, Killmonger refuses, saying, why? So you can lock me up? Nah, just bury me in the ocean with my ancestors who jumped from ships because they knew death was better than bondage. What did you make of that line, Killmonger's final words? Right. So, you know, this is where I... I I know that so much has been written about how people were just loving that line and it was the best ever. And maybe there's this element of pan-Africanism that to a large extent I wasn't really exposed to in South Africa. You can understand when your struggle is so real, you're probably like less concerned about the struggle of others. In fact, looking at America, I would be like, well, American people have got it, you know, really good. That was in my ignorance. But I'm going to be honest and say that I was actually frustrated with these words. Um, and I found them like a little bit. And this is really where people are probably going to put out a hit on me. I found it a little <laughs> bit corny. Um, Interesting. I, I felt that, first of all, there, there could have been a viable third way for Wakanda, right? Okay. To help those outside of it. If you look at Nakia's example, right, of the way she infiltrated uh, places and was freeing captives, you know, kind of on the sly. Yeah. I know that that's uh, maybe not this kind of instant unilateral fix-it mode that, that Killmonger Killmong liked, but when we think back to this notion of Jesus versus Killmonger, Nakia's way was, was the long the long game, yes, right? Yes. So, you know, I was I was frustrated by his myopia and, mm. and the fact that he just saw it as like either I fix everything my way through what I guess, you know, we've said is a kind of imperialist approach or right. I'm going to die. It also felt, and I have a lot to say about this, I'm sorry if I just ramble on and on, feel free to interject. It also felt a bit insulting for those who didn't jump from the ships, yes, right? Yes. There may have been people with fans Families or small children who would not be deciding to only jump themselves, but also to drown their family members, people who didn't believe in suicide. Remember, many of these were African warriors. Yes. They may not have believed to, that they should be dying in that way. Uh, people who maybe in, I guess, even though the facts were to the contrary, believed that the situation would improve. What of those who stayed on the boats and in the end actually facilitated escape from bondage? I mean, there are many stories like that. In Implying that the most noble thing to do would be to jump from the ship, to me, feels like you're diminishing the bravery of those, what it took to persevere. I, I totally agree with you. I know this has been maybe one of the most talked about lines of dialogue in the film. And and I get it. I, I kind of say, all right, I understand what he's saying. But I do feel that this line exposed his true motivation a personal revenge right. rather than a people's liberation. And like you said, with Nakia, 
her ideas could have been incorporated if he really wanted right. to to go that right. route. But doing this, it made it selfish. And yeah. and I think, again, disingenuous to draw a parallel between yourself, who was just so so personally motivated with your ancestors um, who were, you know, basically innocent lambs led to the slaughter where you were killing your way to this p- particular to this position. Mm-hmm. And so I, I find that a, a false parallel. And I agree, it was somewhat offensive for him to draw that parallel and yeah. put him in that same category. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, when I was sitting in the movie, I was I was just disturbed by it. And it was only in upon reflection, you know, that I realized what it was that bothered me. And I think it is that notion that you were so self-serving all along. And now suddenly, you know, you have this noble death. And right. and no, that's, you know, who who are who are you to to judge what is is more noble? And I guess another point here is maybe some subtle messaging. Maybe I'm, I'm reading it wrong, but but in that, I know there has been sometimes tension between Africans and African-Americans. Yeah. And and maybe not in in the terms that Killmonger is saying, but, but yet still there is tension between those who are from the continent and those who are here who are descendants but don't have that same connection to the continent. And... and I don't know, for you having, you know, grown up on the continent and then coming here, um, I'm just interested to your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, when I was growing up in South Africa, I, of course, knew theoretically that slaves had been taken from the continent and that these people were dispersed all over the world. And, um, you know, that people had attempted to reconnect to the continent um, about the loss of family, language, culture, and so on. But I think I only really, and I'm not obviously trying to <laughs> trying to say that my immigration year was like slavery, nothing like that. But I think I only have begun to understand the strain of what that could possibly be when I moved here. Because my culture, you know, in South Africa, I was classified as clearlung, which means colored, which is basically a catch-all phrase for people who are mixed. Mm. But we have a distinct culture, you know, whether we like it or not, we do. My culture doesn't exist here. My language, even though I speak English, the, the, you know, the type of words and things that I use, it doesn't exist here. And so um, I've been over the past, you know, 12 years that I've lived here, I've, I've had to, it feels like almost on a daily basis, shake off parts of who I am in order to assimilate. Mm. And so when I started experiencing that, I realized that um, these people who have been here for 400 and more years, I think imprinted in their DNA is the motherland and the continent. And they know that they are displaced. I feel displaced because when I go back to South Africa, I don't fit there anymore. When I'm in New York, I don't really fit here either. So a people having been displaced for so long, surely they are yearning for something. And yet they may not necessarily have had the space to be able to explore that because it's really just about survival. So some of the ways in which um, 
there may have been interactions with the culture and and so on may not have been the most sophisticated so you have people you know kind of shrugging or smirking at the naming conventions in terms of how the kids are named to maybe try and recapture something but I can understand why people would want to do that just as I yearn you know for my culture now um, I I get why they are trying to go back and and what I will say is for those of us who stayed on the continent we were also colonized you know a lot of what we had was was taken away so are we right to even judge then what is and isn't african that's a good point <laughs> you know? when we were as colonized and i mean i'm not speaking the language of my ancestors right now as i speak to you in fact you know some of the tribes that i descend from that language is extinct hmm. so um yeah there's there's this friction and and the sad thing is that what we have to realize is that and this is me maybe being a little bit dramatic is that a lot of the division that's created is is the division that that was created by the oppressor in order right. to keep us from uniting and being more powerful than we could ever think well said well said i feel like when we because the black community and the diaspora is rife with segmentation and we right. talked about right. by color tone light skin dark oh, yeah. skin by speech, yes. by education, fraternities and sororities, um, nationality, are you Jamaican or British or Haitian or Dominican or American, you right. know, whatever it is. Yes. And I feel like it's been exacerbated by our own perpetuation of these divisions yes. within the black community, which is exactly what the <laughs> slave masters wanted Absolutely. from the beginning. Yeah. And I feel it's destructive in Killmonger's comment to make that distinction of demeaning those who stayed on the ships right. versus those who jumped. And it's just one additional way of segmenting right. African peoples and people of African descent, which is by doing that, he's all saying, oh, I don't want to be enslaved. But by by creating another segmentation you're doing exactly, exactly. what the sta- slave masters <laughs> and, want and this, to do. you know and and that's a fantastic point and i think it, it keeps echoing that killmonger as much as he's trying to liberate people of african descent so much of his speech of his methodology just harkens back to imperialism colonialism and the very oppression that he is trying to liberate people from absolutely <laughs> so is death better than bondage i mean you know, if we think about it literally, you, there are many examples of, of of individuals in bondage in the Bible who actually effected great change. If you think of Joseph or Daniel, I mean, they are they are so many, right? right? So, would death have been better in those in that circumstance? No, because then whatever message they were trying to convey, whatever lesson had to be learned through them, was was never going to happen, right? So, in that case, no, death is 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 not better than bondage. You're right because of of the way that God was going to use that particular period of bondage right. for others to choose right. death, again, going back to Killmonger, is a selfish thing. Yes, yes. To so. say, I don't want to do this, so therefore I'm not going to be part of this, where for Paul, for Joseph, as you mentioned, for others, to be in bondage, it was part of God's plan, and when they submitted to him, they um, were able to basically be a blessing to many others right. because of that. And if we think about uh, I mean bondage can can be 
can happen in so many ways and I mean I was just reading as I was thinking about this in Romans 6 where it talks about being slaves to sin but then it also talks about you know you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness right. so mm. you know we we mm. have this language being used and you know I don't want to get like super complicated about it but uh, death may not necessarily be better than bondage again because while we are still alive we have an opportunity to be crucified right with christ and right. therefore to become i guess as it's stated here and i know it's the language of the day but you know if we think about it just metaphorically to become a slave to righteousness yes i mean i guess in that regard you're gonna serve one master or the right. other right? right so you're always gonna be in bondage to right. something yeah death may actually be a cop-out thing yeah Right? Because, again, this notion of spiritual maturity may not be reached. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well said. Finally, Killmonger is gone. He's dead. T'Challa resumes his place on the throne of Wakanda. And he neither preserves the isol isolationist policies of his ancestors, nor does he incorporate the insurgent plans of his most recent predecessor, his cousin, but rather he opts for a better alternative, which is to establish an outreach center in Oakland and then going further than that and announcing to the United Nations the truth about Wakanda and its desire to now play a positive role on the world stage. So is this the dawn of a new and improved world or is it the beginning of the end for Wakanda? <laughs> Not to be cynical. <laughs> um, you know... I mean, this brings us almost back to where we we started. So now that Absolutely. you've revealed yourself, what now, right? What now? So so you've revealed yourself to the UN, and at the risk again of you know being put into uh, some type of political bondage myself, I think that that's kind of a bad place to be. <laughs> You know, I mean, that's like the hotbed of colonialism <laughs> and imperialism. We love the work of the UN in many respects, but I mean, it's it's a flawed, it's a flawed body. And so I know that that may be, again, bringing the movie full circle in that, you know, or if you look back at Civil War, that his father died, you know, at that yes. UN meeting in Vienna. So now he's coming back and, and, and we have to remember that this is a superhero movie and, and, you know, maybe not, doesn't, it's not as, I guess, a sophisticated at times as we would want it to be but i just i just think that uh it might be the beginning of the end because revealing yourself to the un um i would have thought that they would go a little bit more you know like maybe i just like nikia so much like her way of doing things and uh, and, yeah. and just go grassroots and i mean to a large extent a lot of what's even happening these days people are moving away from these organized you know bodies and and stuff and they're saying yeah, what can so we do bureaucratic. on yeah what can we do on a on a grassroots level? I agree that it's probably best that they did it in Akia's way because they could do it somewhat more covertly right. and still achieve the same results without right. having to announce to everyone. Yeah. They didn't have to let people know that necessarily that they were the ones behind it, um, at yeah. least not to the UN. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think this is the end of Wakanda as a pure <laughs> and undefiled right. nation, right. at least in its own eyes. And you know, it's going to lead to inevitable conflicts, some healthy, some not. But that's going to be the price for further right. growth and advancement. And all said, I mean, I think in in a way, though, it's like Killmonger scored a Pyrrhic mm -hmm. victory. Yeah. 
I was thinking the same. I mean, he was he just like when T'Challa had his his vision or his dream on the plains with his ancestors, and he said, "You know, yeah. you were wrong, and this is a monster of our own making." Yeah. I mean, Killmonger. Yeah, he he ended even though he was, I guess, dead. I don't know if he'll have some type of resurrection. Uh, I mean, you <laughs> but, never know. But um, you never yeah, know. he 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 did score a victory. It's you know, it's, again, just uh, the execution of of this plan is is what remains to be seen. Yes, uh, it cost him uh, Killmonger his life, but in the end, he did ultimately succeed. Wakanda abandoned its isolationism yeah. and it's moving forward into helping other people. So. Hopefully, you know, Nakia and Shuri will, will play great roles in the future of the sequel. Right. And so as we close, Christian churches and Christians, are we more known for our outreach <laughs> as Wakanda was moving toward in the end or in the beginning for our isolationist and protectionist behavior? <laughs> I think, you know, it's one of those things where the right answer is it depends, yes. I guess, you know. <laughs> yes. But, uh, I mean, in my observation, yes, some Christians and Christian churches are engaged in outreach and are known for outreach on a, you know, on a very broad scale. Sure. But when I think about it and look at it critically, I, you know, there's obviously more that that can and and should be done and in some places you know nothing is is being done and i mean we we do have um a mission that what we're supposed to be doing on earth i mean that we we will be known by our love as disciples of of jesus so you know as i thought about this i kept thinking about the to me, even here locally, I feel like the biggest issue has got to do with, you know, volunteers and, and volunteer hours. Maybe there they are probably more issues and, and you interject. But I think this with people being busy with work and life and so on, um, we're not doing as much as we could. But then that leads me to this notion of priorities and, and relationship, right, that... Um, Ultimately, it is up to the church to set the tone for, you know, outreach, but it's up to people to to prioritize and and to understand that that some of of, I guess, the ways in which I guess we even isolate ourselves for self-preservation, because I have to do my my work and I shouldn't be, uh, you know, um, whatever, recording this podcast for human <laughs> sake, right, uh, is, is because I should be doing other things. Um, we, we probably need to take a hard look at, at priorities. Yeah, I, th I think it does, as you said at the beginning, it does depend. It depends <laughs> on the location. And yes. maybe, unfortunately, in the U.S., the term Christian carries a stigma with many people due in no small part to this vocal minority who identify with that label while behaving in All arguably right. contradictory fashion and not only that but yeah there are countries outside of the u.s that where people have as far as christianity is concerned they've experienced the things we've been talking about imperialism yes condescension yes. even rather than what jesus taught which is unconditional love for for one another whether you follow him or not right and and that every person has equal value from, you know, the Queen of England to, right. say, like a young prostitute in Calcutta. I mean, you know, overall, I believe that if Christianity is to mean anything of what Christ modeled, it's going to be the result of the, the quiet volunteer work of right. women and men who 
serve others without any expectation of conversion or any other formal recognition. So, I don't know, instead of leading with, um, do you know that Christ died for you? Right. Which, which, again, I'm not knocking that, but I think that what actually may work most is people leading with empathy and mm -hmm. compassion, just one yeah. human being to another. And I think that's what's going to stand mm -hmm. out in a world of vast self-promotion. And I think that's what's going to cause people to be curious about what it is that that drives such selflessness right. and, and cause them to ask more about the behavior. So I think that kind of outreach is possible. Uh, to be known by that and uh Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I th I think you know if we even look at at the what the followers were called way back. I mean, it was the way. The it way. wasn't even you know Christians or that. In yeah. fact, that was a derogatory term that was placed on them. And and so to lead with Correct. you know I'm a Christian and this is what you got to do. You're not following Jesus' method. I mean, his method is there in the Bible. You can see he first gets to know people and right. then he meets their needs. And right. you know it's all these things that happen before he says now follow me exactly. and and so the kind of you know the classic fire and brimstone those things are not appealing to people who are already in a in a fight for their lives sometimes just to survive whether it be in this city or in others so you're right you know um maybe I, I spoke about priorities for outreach, but I think what you're actually pointing out is that we need to think about outreach differently, right? Yeah. Like what is yeah. what is outreach? It, it doesn't have to be, you know, a big program on a large scale. There should be other ways in which we are, um, whether it be like we have community groups or something, other ways where we can actually work with people to just get to know them to understand what it is that they need and and without and just like you said with empathy and without judgment to try and and figure out how um we can help to meet those needs yeah i i think that's such a key point where you said how jesus reached people because he was concerned with the individual and i think when we lead with trying to convert people it's transparent that that's the motive and it's like being it's like killmonger being right. exposed because what you're really about is just you right you, um, exactly i was thinking the same thing it's actually just self-interested to be able to say that i guess i converted 10 people and i won right. souls quote unquote and and so yeah so we have to to really look at this from a perspective of humility and um what is it that jesus would want and i don't think that you know telling people that they're going to burn in hellfire is is being known <laughs> by our love so you know how can we love more abundantly and maybe from that position it will be easier to interact with people in a more meaningful way i agree i agree and i think the folks of wakanda would agree as well because they are now moving toward their outreach phase to love others as well so it all kind of comes together oh yes it does <laughs> so andrea thank you so much for sitting in as the guest for this particular uh, episode of evidence of things screened i really appreciated having you here you're welcome to all our listeners as always thank you for listening we'll be back with another episode of evidence of things screened soon until then, this is Lincoln Alabaster. Keep your faith up. Evidence of Things Screened is an Advent Hope Ventures production in association with Church of the Advent Hope, a Seventh-day Adventist community on the Upper East Side of Manhattan in New York City.
Go to adventhope.org for more information. Evidence of Things Screen is produced by Todd Stout, Tony Sebro, and Lincoln Alabaster, with technical assistance from Nicholas Zork, Roberto Rutherford, Dwight Francis, and Jim Bogusky. Music provided by Jaw Rockin' Productions. <laughs>